October is Stewardship Month at Incarnation. And um, it's kind of interesting because last year we were in the middle of a series on the Gospel of Luke. This year we're in the middle of a series on the Book of Acts. And uh, if it's Stewardship Month, it's usually a good idea to at least plan like one sermon on the topic of money. And uh, the interesting thing is, is that we had already kind of mapped out the passages we were going to speak at. And both times, both last year with the Gospel of Luke and in the Book of Acts this year, there was just a passage on money already. And uh, I think the interesting thing about that is that it's not that interesting. Um, you know, Jesus and the New Testament address the topic of money so often that we can sort of get hard-hearted about it. I mean, we could just sort of gloss over that and think, you know, I mean, if, if churches preached on money that often, as often as Jesus did, I don't know if anyone would come. <laughs> Jesus and the rest of the New Testament addresses the to- topic of money early and often because it's so often a topic that cuts straight to the heart. Is this not a topic that cuts to the heart in the United States in 2017? But the bad news was the passage was about two people dropping dead. And I thought this could be one of those sermons of congregation shrinking proportions. You know, it's stewardship month, so be careful how you give pay attention to Ananias and Sapphira in this passage. Here goes. All right. Please turn with me in your pew Bibles to Acts 2, to Acts 4, verse 32. It's on page 912. Page 912. And um, Luke records, now the full number of those who believed were one heart and soul. And this is really just a statement of complete and really miraculous unity, is it not? Thousands of believers, and yet Luke declares that the full number were of one heart and soul. And I think this might help us to sort of understand why what Ananias and Sapphira do a few verses later is so grievous, right? Because there was something pristine about the church in these early days. And it's not surprising, I think, that their sense of like eternal, like, excuse me, internal unity began to express itself in an external way, right? They have this internal unity, this internal love. It starts to express itself externally. Luke says that no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. So this was their mentality. And really, it should be our mentality too. No one said anything was his own because really... Nothing we have belongs to us, right? Nothing belongs to us. That should be our mentality. You know, the Psalms say that the earth is the Lord's and all the fullness thereof. And a few months ago, I did something mischievous. I read that verse out loud and then I said, how many of you guys have a, how many of you own a laptop? And people raised their hands and I said, the earth is the Lord's and all the fullness thereof. I said, how many of you guys own a laptop? And the slower people among us, Raise their hand again. <laughs> and I said, the earth is the Lord's in all the fullness thereof. How many of you guys own a laptop? And everybody, okay. We get the picture by now. So the early church was utterly convinced that everything they had, everything they had, brothers and sisters, all their money, all their fields, their possessions, it belonged first and foremost to God. And as a result of this, it says in verse 34, There was not a needy person among them. 
I mean, can you guys imagine, can you imagine that? There was not a needy person among them. What we're seeing here in Acts 4 is actually a fulfillment of something that the Lord promised back 1,500 years ago in Deuteronomy 15. So let's turn there briefly. It's on page 158. And in Deuteronomy 15.4, the Lord explicitly promises that he will so richly bless them, and he says this, that there shall be no poor among you. But here's the thing. In order for this to come to pass, they would have to obey his teachings on the Sabbath year. So every seven years, the Israelites were to cancel all debts that had accrued. Uh, So if someone owes you 10 lambs or 10 bushels of barley, and they were only able to pay off half of that, well, in the seventh year, you canceled their debt. You didn't just let it keep racking up. And the idea was that this would actually eradicate poverty. Because no one uh, could remain in debt forever. Um, Some of you with student loans are thinking, that sounds pretty sweet. (laughs) Seven years. (laughs) Um, In fact, the Lord knew the hearts of people and he knew that some of them might start to get stingy around like year five or six and say well dang i don't want to like lend this year because in like a year and a half or in like six months is the is the sabbath year and all the debts are going to be canceled and so the lord says in verse nine look there with me if you would he says take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart you see god calls stinginess toward the poor an unworthy thought it says, take care that there not be an unworthy thought in your heart. And you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near. And your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother and you give him nothing. And he cry out to the Lord against you and you be guilty of sin. So the Lord is saying, look, you don't want to be on the wrong side of the poor crying out to their creator. Some of you guys might have heard of John Woolman, who was a a famous abolitionist, a Quaker in early Americas. And um, uh, it was largely through his influence that by 1761, he had convinced most of the Quakers in the United States, which was a lot of them at the time, um, to release their slaves. Now, 1761, not only was this 100 years prior to the Civil War, so this was voluntary. They just did it. Because their hearts were convicted. Not only was this 100 years prior to the Civil War, it was more than 10 years prior to the Revolutionary War. And here the Quakers are releasing their slaves. And not only did they release their, sw- or their slaves, but under Woolman's influence, in many cases, they paid reparations for the years that these slaves has, have served them. Can you imagine this? There's no government, there's no gun forcing them to do this, and they just do it. Isn't that incredible? And one of the arguments that John Woolman used among the slave-owning Quakers at the time was that if they didn't release their, their slaves, the African slaves who by this time were largely Christians, he said they would cry out to Jesus. And he said, he warned his Quaker brethren, he says, guys, God is gonna listen to the poor and be against us. I mean, talk about motivation. You don't wanna be on the wrong side of God's heart for the poor. And that's really what Deuteronomy 15, 9 through 10 is warning us too. And the Sabbath year, it was this genius system. But unfortunately, it was rarely obeyed. That's what the Lord says. That's why he says with sober realism in verse 11, 
there will never cease to be poor in the land. Isn't that a peculiar thing for him to say? Because he had just said, there shall be no poor among you. But he says, there will never cease to be poor in the land. And actually, Jesus repeats this in the Gospels, doesn't he? He says, there will always be poor among you. He's referencing this text. Why? Why is it the case that there will always be poor when God promised the land would be prosperous and he gave them such righteous laws? Because as the saying goes, God gives us enough for all our need, but not for all of our greed. Now flip back with me, 1,500 years later to Acts 4. Back to Acts 4. And again, we see the fulfillment of God's vision in Deuteronomy 15.4. There will be no poor among you. Acts 4.34, in fact, says there was not a needy person among them. For as many of you as were owner, uh, excuse me, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds, what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as they had need. I mean, there it is, right? This is what happens when God's law is written on people's hearts. It's not just a commandment they're hearing from the outside; it's beginning to transform them from the inside out. Because in, or, in order for ex, an external law to be effective, there has to be internal transformation. And so next we're given a specific example of someone who was operating with this sort of uh, new heart. Verse 36 tells of a man named Barnabas, whose name means son of encouragement. And Barnabas was apparently a man of some wealth. But you know, the New Testament doesn't paint an entirely two-dimensional portrait of the rich. Right? It's not totally two-dimensional. Sometimes we meet hospitable and generous people like Barnabas. And we know he was hospitable because uh, his home in Cyprus became the hub for the first church in that area. And we know that he was generous because here in verse 37, we see that he voluntarily sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And that's pretty radical. Is that not you know, there's a lot of young people in this church, but at some point, many of you are going to own fields. And you're going to own houses. And some of you might even own a second house. And some of you might have somebody give you some really nice, fancy car. And maybe the Lord would have you just sell that and give the money to the body of Christ. I mean, the Lord still asks people to do these sorts of things. You know, one of the reasons why we were able to fix up this building, to put up the walls, and to just kind of set it up for worship, is that someone who is not even a part of this congregation visited us early on, and they were inspired. And a few months later, they received um, a large inheritance, and they just gave a bunch of it to us. And isn't that pretty awesome? Now, I, I referred to the Apostle Paul earlier. But I wonder if some of you guys are, are called to be more of a Barnabas. To be a person who is radically generous. Or, 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 or maybe you're going to be a person with not much means, but you're still going to be radically generous. Or a person who consistently opens your house to the church. Opens your house to your neighbors. Opens your house to the lost or maybe someone who prayerfully and intentionally speaks words of encouragement that build up those around you. Not just like blowing smoke, but like real spirit-saturated words that build up the body of Christ. 
You guys know what I'm talking about? Um, I think the only time that I almost fell out, you guys know that? It's like a revival meeting and somebody like prays for somebody and they like fall on their backs and start shaking or whatever. Like the o- only time that that almost happened to me, sincerely I had to stop myself from falling, was just when this lady who was such, she had such a gift of encouragement, she just spoke a word of encouragement over me. She didn't touch me, she didn't pray, she just spoke a word of encouragement over me and I, I literally almost fell down. I mean that is spirit saturated words of encouragement. That's the kind of gift that can set a whole community on fire. We're going to meet all kinds of people as we read through the book of Acts. But maybe some of you guys are called to be a Barnabas. Now, um, when the word got out that this rich man had made this radical gift, it became something that people wanted to emulate. But the unfortunate thing was uh, that sometimes people want that same kind of like respect or spiritual clout without actually paying the same sacrificial cost, right? And that's what happens with Ananias and Sapphira. The sad story, look with me at Acts 5.1. The story is actually given in direct contrast to what we just heard that Barnabas did, right? It says, But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, that is to say his wife was complicit in this deception, says he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, it's important to note that the real sin here was not that he held back some of the money. Uh, Peter says in verse 4, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? In other words, no one was forcing them to give anything. Right? No one was forcing them to. Giving in the early church was voluntary, not compulsory. This wasn't like communist Russia, where you were asked to like, give all your possessions to the government. No, the real sin was their deception. The fact that Ananias and Sapphira wanted it to appear right, as if they'd done exactly what Barnabas had done and given everything to the church, because then people would be like, wow, you guys are so godly. You guys are like a power couple. But this wasn't the truth, was it? It was a lie. And so Peter says in verse 3, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? This participation between their sin, their deception, and Satan's work in their life. Why has Satan so filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? And he says in verse 4, Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart and have not, you have not lied to man, but to God? So the real sin was lying to God, not just stinginess, right? Now, I hope you'll allow a preacher to veer off the main road for a couple of minutes and head down a brief little cul-de-sac because I want us to see something here in verses 3 and 4, and that is that Pete, what Peter is implicitly saying about the Holy Spirit. Peter says in verse 3 that Ananias lied to the Holy Spirit. And then he says in verse 4, you have not lied to man, but to God. In other words, he's lied to God, the Holy Spirit. See, Peter is affirming here implicitly the full divinity of the Holy Spirit. You can't lie to an impersonal force. You can't lie to a power. You can only lie to a person, and in this case, the third person of the Trinity. And as we see, 
This is a very unwise thing to do. Now, sometimes I hear people say things like, the New Testament never uses the word Trinity. And that's true in a simple sense. The word Trinity came about about a century and a half later. But there's no question that Acts assumes the Trinity. There's no question of that. Bible scholar Richard Rackham says this about the book of Acts. He writes, It is evident from Acts that the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith, of the Trinity, the Incarnation, the Atonement, were not taught by the apostles dogmatically. That is to say, they didn't, they didn't use the exact words or the ex- tease out the exact details, but he says, they were contained implicitly in their teachings. Now stick with me. He goes on to say, the reason is fairly obvious. Life comes before thought. Action comes before reflection upon it. The church had to first live upon the doctrines before she preached them, manifest and verify them in her living experience before she attempted to analyze and define them. And that's the kind of thing we see going on in Peter's language here in Acts 5, verse 3 and 4, right? Peter isn't giving a theological essay. He's not even meaning to talk about the Trinity, but his language is undeniably Trinitarian, is it not? Thus, concludes Rackham, the doctrine of the Trinity of the three persons in one God is nowhere asserted in Acts in plain terms. But listen, he says, it is implied throughout and without it, the mutual relations of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit would be inexplicable. So the doctrine of the Trinity is, is nothing if not the best reading of the doctrine of God in Scripture. And that's what's going on here. In other words, we can't just... We, we can't make sense of the way that the early church talked about God without arriving at Trinitarian language. All right. I'm going to get off the cul-de-sac back on the main road because this is some important stuff, some crazy stuff going on in this passage. Amen, right? God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus says, baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Sounds like a good thing, right? All right, verse 5. It says, when Ananias heard these words, after Peter had said these things to him, right, he fell down and breathed his last. I mean, the guy died right there on the spot. And it says, great fear came upon all who heard of it. A few verses later, the process would be repeated with his wife, Sapphira. After she's questioned, it says in verse 10, immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And then in verse 11, again, it says, and great fear came upon the whole community and upon all who heard of these things. And I'll bet it did. I mean, this sounds like Old Testament stuff, doesn't it? And the church actually grew after this, it says. It says in verse 14, more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. But this is not usually the way that we think about God, is it? Our modern sensibilities tend to try to domesticate God, and we, we think God's only allowed to really forgive people. God's not really allowed to judge people, at least not in my heart and mind. But this is emphatically, guys, this is emphatically not what Jesus taught. Yes, Jesus makes it clear that we're not the judges, right? We don't see all, and we're not unaffected by sin, but that doesn't mean that there will be no judgment. It's true, we don't have the right to judge anyone, but Jesus does. That's what the scriptures say. Jesus talks about it in all four gospels. He will judge the world. We say it in our creed every Sunday. And if we don't believe that, we're believing in a Jesus of our own imagination. 
I ask you this. Who better to judge the world than Jesus? Who is more qualified than the one through whom all things were created? And even more, the one who died to offer us salvation. That's the one I want judging the world. Amen? Amen. Jesus is a just judge. And while most people will not be judged by the Lord until the end of time, in the case of Ananias and Sapphira, Jesus apparently had decided that the day had come. Their deception was a crime against the unity of the early church. It was a crime against the poor, and it was a bold-faced lie to the Holy Spirit. And I think this story and, and, and what I experienced with my friend, it's so jarring that we easily miss the point that what God is doing in this passage is actually defending his bride. Because he had just gone on to describe the church's purity, this pristine unity, this beautiful care for the poor that was going on. And then somebody from the group decides to lie and try to twist and try to poison and use dishonesty and use their money in a way that began began to subvert what God was doing in this community. What would you think of a father who didn't defend his kids? What would you think of a shepherd who didn't protect his flock? Jesus had some words about that, I think. What would you think of a groom who didn't defend his bride? Now, I don't know what you all think about that. Um, If you don't know me very well, I hope I didn't give the wrong impression of either myself or of the Lord. Before we close, I just want to let the scriptures challenge us in four ways. First, to humble ourselves and admit that God is God and he is the rightful judge of heaven and earth. Second, to see the bridegroom's passion for defending his church. With all the injustices and persecutions from without and corruptions from within that we hear about in the church, it can make it seem like God is indifferent, but his justice will have its day, either in this life or in the age to come. Third, to recognize that everything we own belongs to God, first and foremost. And finally, if there's anything in your life that's hidden in darkness, I urge you to bring it into the light. It's already plain as day before the Holy Spirit of God. Let's pray. Father, we bless you for this beautiful picture of your church. And um, I feel freshly sobered by it. You are the righteous one. And we pray that you would help us to not set our hearts, to set the intention of our hearts against you, our God and King. Not only the one who reigns, but the one who died for us and for our salvation. Lord, your love bridged the gap, and I pray that everyone here would have ears to hear the gospel. They would receive what your, your son Jesus has offered them. And when it comes to your judgment, we would agree with Jesus that it was finished on the cross. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.